It's the Healthy Woman Show on WJR with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas, and I'm here with Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, on tonight's show, we are going to talk about several really interesting topics. Right, Ann. We're going to talk about the COVID vaccine and the new approval, masking in the schools, uh, Michigan's first infertility advocacy day, and also a tribute to 9-11. An interesting and informative show coming up next. Welcome to WJR's Healthy Woman Show, brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, in this first segment, we bring back one of our favorite guests, Dr. Leonard Johnson. He is the Division Chief and Program Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship at Ascension St. John Hospital and Medical Center. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you. And Carol, I'm gonna kind of let you kick things off because we are cheering the FDA approval of the COVID vaccine. Yes, the Pfizer. So Dr. Johnson, I have to tell you, um, I was having, am having, still a lot of difficulty in uh, convincing patients to get the vaccine. And and every patient I see, that's the first question I ask. And then I I hear several reasons why they don't get it. And I handle the, it isn't gonna affect you in pregnancy. It doesn't affect your fertility. But I hear significantly that I I need more studies and I, I need it to be FDA approved. Now, at least one of them is, and I guess Moderna uh, submitted this month, and and, uh, the other one Johnson is going to do later in the year. So I was thrilled when I heard this. Um, Do you think this is going to make a big impact? Are you hearing the same thing about um, waiting for this approval, and how big of a deal is this? Yeah, so I think there's probably two types of approval who talk about this vaccine issue about in terms of FDA approval. There's one group of people who I think earnestly wanted to see the FDA approval before they get vaccinated. And then there's a, probably another group of people who are just trying to move the goalposts on us. It's like, okay, now we got FDA approval. Now I still need more data. And I've still seen that among some of my patients, which is unfortunate because I think people really have to understand that if the FDA has approved it, they really do consider that the risks are much, much lower than the benefits and that it is overall a very safe vaccine. So um, so I don't know how much it's going to change our number of that group of people. And there are some people, to be honest with you, who have told me, regardless of the FDA status, they were not going to take it. So I think we've still got, we're going to still have a lot of vaccine hesitancy. It may, this is going to move some people over, but I don't think it's going to be the number we hoped it would be. You know, that's frustrating because when I was reading an article, they commented that I think 377 million people in the United States have gotten the vaccine, 4.7 billion worldwide, and with rare catastrophic events. So, I mean, how many numbers do you really need? And then the FDA has very strict um, guidelines. So they look at several studies, risk factors. They go to the the, the, the facilities where the vaccine's being made. Um, they, they make sure that there's quality control. So, so that's why it took longer 
but still in the FDA approval timeframe, it was quicker. And, you know, you got to believe that, that, you know, with, with the numbers of billions of people worldwide, that we're not seeing any catastrophic events, and we've got an FDA approval of one, soon a second one, you know, you got to try to convince, you know, people that, that that's, that's good. Yeah, and I, and I think that still the greatest reasons we're seeing vaccine hesitancy by far is misinformation people are getting from social media, no question about it. And that's the biggest thing that we're really dealing with. And so there's been different, several, several different talking points we've been recommended, but I would generally, if we want to as providers, or if we want to talk to other people, just not even as medical providers, we can tell people, look, if you're not convinced, go ask your doctor, don't ask Facebook, correct? Right. right. And if I'm not correct, what are you seeing in your hospitals? Because, you know, I'm reading that 97% of hospital admissions, ICU deaths are unvaccinated Delta variants. Um, that if you are vaccinated, the CDC says that you may get no symptoms, mild symptoms, but serious illness and hospitalization is 0.00003% risk. So are you seeing that in the Ascension St. John system as well, that it's the unvaccinated Delta variants that are um, occupying those beds? That's correct. That's correct. Again, the number of admitted patients who've been fully vaccinated 14 days after the second dose or the one in J&J is it's really uncommon uh, and I've had maybe one or two of those patients but those patients tend to have mild illness and are discharged within a day or two not generally progressing the only ones we had seen again were the people who were immunocompromised individuals the people with underlying malignancies leukemias lymphomas etc but remember that's that target group of the third dose we're giving now too so those are so the data you repeated is absolutely correct. That's what we're seeing in practice, with the exceptions of those people who are immunosuppressed. And those are the ones where we're now having the recommended third dose booster. Got it. And you know what that what this means, Dr. Johnson, is that you know, you've got an ICU bed with an unvaccinated patient, and the person who had the heart attack, the stroke, the trauma victim you know, they can't get help or care because this bed is being occupied, you know, and they need it, don't get me wrong, you get sick, you get COVID and you deserve to be treated, but you know, how many beds are available now for the other medical emergencies that, that are seen in the hospitals? And we've been fortunate here in Detroit area that our hospitalizations are not as busy as they are down south. Uh, where they really do have a major shortage of ICUs and bed for those sick people after trauma or acute cardiac events, stroke, et cetera. So we're fortunate making those same decisions about rationing care yet. But if we do have a fall surge, which the numbers are trending that way, we could get back to that point. And we know that it would be easy, easily ameliorated if people get vaccinated because we know we went up in that situation. Really, I don't attempt to get my patients to buy into the society good issue because I realize that's a moist that's gonna be a difficult argument because not all patients or individuals believe in that as a that they should take that burden on is worrying about all the others in society. But I can tell you for their own personal health, right? I don't want to see them on a ventilator. I don't want to see them or a family member dying. It's that simple because even if they're a young healthier individual, if they transmit it to the elderly relative or friend and that person ends up in the ventilator dying. I've got to believe that would create a lot of guilt. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And and with regard to the immunocompromised, they're still recommended to get the vaccine. Do, is there a, a, a wait time for them getting treatment um, before they get their first vaccine? Do they have to get more better immunity after their last chemo or whatever? Is there a time frame or should they get it right away? I'm sorry, we don't have a specific time set anytime around chemo because some of the chemotherapy drugs or other medications we use to suppress your immune system, they have a half-life of almost a month. So, you know, what we generally say is you don't want to go in your vaccine sick or with fever or suspected COVID. Other than that, you can go get the vaccine because if we wait for the right time for these people's immune system to recover, we may never get that opportunity. We may get COVID and get very sick again very quickly. Now, antibodies. So... Um, you know, for the people who have been vaccinated, uh, I get a lot of questions about how protected am I? I got my vaccine in January. It's September. I'm reading on the news that now the boosters are going to be recommended for end of September. I also read that people who've gotten COVID and have their own antibodies are protected even better than the vaccine receivers. So, so if I got vaccinated in January, when should I be getting a booster or should I? Yeah, so I'm definitely not trying to get too far ahead of the CDC and FDA on this one. So I think for the immunosuppressed individuals, the booster dose is important. That's what they've come out with. But for the rest of individuals, let's kind of wait and see, because initially it was eight months, now it's six months, and then there was just more data recently out of Israel where we don't know if it's necessary at all. One thing I want to comment, too, is on that study you just briefly mentioned about there's some evidence that just came out that natural immunity may be better than vaccine immunity. And basically, the summary of that study, I want to emphasize that this was not a, like a randomized prospective study. This was just where they collected data on a large population of people and saying, what was the frequency of people testing positive, either having COVID before or having COVID vaccine before? And they found that people who had, had COVID before had less frequent infections compared to those who had gotten vaccine before. Now, it didn't say anything about how sick people got. But the problem with that study is that they didn't insists that people went and get tested. So for example, if people have had COVID before, just chose to not get tested when they had sinus symptoms, then you wouldn't know that they had COVID at all. So these may be different types of patients in terms of those who get vaccinated, may be more likely to go get tested based on symptoms than those people who have had previous COVID too. So there was no method of making sure that people were tested at the same frequency. So that's the only thing I'd say about that study. So in the U.S., we're still saying, if even if you had COVID before, we do recommend COVID vaccine to boost your immunity. So, And I wouldn't change, I would deviate from that based on that limited little study we have so far, because it wasn't a prospective study where it was controlled in any way at all, okay? Awesome. And that, I'm glad you said that, because, you know, when you talk about social media, that's what people are reading on the news. And so, and, and it's important for people listening to understand that just because there's a, you know, a, a little pilot kind of study out there that, you know, again, talk to your doctors, um, you know, talk, look at, at the CDC and, and the reputable sites um, to get your, your best information. So um, how are you doing through all of this, Dr. Johnson, with, you know, fighting the, the, the battle of COVID? You know, I think really, you know, we've been doing okay. We've still, you know, more cases than we did a month or so ago in the hospital. Still not the major surge. Uh, you know, I really think, you know, I really feel the thing that's more fatiguing than anything is sort of having to kind of keep going back to these same talking points over and over and over about the need for sort of returning to indoor masking in crowded places, 
as well as, again, trying to get the vaccine hesitant to get vaccinated. You know, we know that those measures work. Again, this is not a political statement I'm making. This is a medical statement of fact. We don't want seeing people in the hospital sick and dying. We just are tired of this. 18 months of this, healthcare workers continue to leave this field every time there's a new surge. And so I think people have to think about themselves, their own health, as well as sort of the collective health of the healthcare workers taking care of them too, is that we really want people on board. Not that we're trying to brainwash them, but we don't like seeing people sick and dying in our hands by a very preventable disease, by very simple measures that are very well established. Dr. Johnson, in our next segment, we are going to be talking about masking in schools. And before we let you go, would you give us some advice? Number one, should the vaccinated be wearing masks in public places? What is your recommendation? And number two, how do you feel about children being masked in school? Well, I think it's important to remember about the indoor mask wearing is that at the end of May, when the CDC said that vaccinated individuals no longer had to wear masks inside, what happened was everybody quit wearing masks, vaccinated and unvaccinated. Um, so you have to remember that even if you're vaccinated, you go into a crowded room, those people not wearing masks doesn't mean that they're vaccinated. And the one thing we've discovered with this Delta variant over the summer, based on this big outbreak that occurred in the East Coast, was that at a big outdoor event is that people who are vaccinated can acquire COVID as easily as those who are unvaccinated. Now, they don't get as sick, and most of the people don't end up in the hospital, as we were discussing earlier. So, But you can, if you go into a crowded bar or restaurant, you can still acquire COVID. You may be mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic, could potentially spread it to somebody who's been vaccinated. So based on that, with the rising number of cases, I would still say if you're going into a large crowded area where you don't know people's status in terms of having been health screened, uh, et cetera, I still myself am going back and choosing wearing masks in those situations. And I think it's the safest strategy. As it relates to the schools, I fully support what several local counties have done, especially Oakland and then Wayne County as well, where they're having the children who are predominantly unvaccinated and having, are now having higher risk of serious disease in the South with Delta variant too, I fully support them going back to wearing masks in school as well. Um, I've been on record for that as well. Again, we look at the experience in the South where schools that have been opened unmasked, there's mass quarantines due to COVID exposure. And sadly, the pediatric ICUs are filled up in these states, such as Florida, Texas, Missouri. And these are sick children and children are actually in fact dying, most sadly of all. So I think, remember our K through eighth grade are unvaccinated completely. Uh, 12th through, I'm sorry, eighth through uh, 12th grade are only probably less than 50% vaccinated, maybe 50% at most. So these are a very vulnerable population we need to protect. And a measure as simple as masking clearly does work. Dr. Leonard Johnson, Division Chief and Program Director of the Infectious Disease Fellowship at Ascension St. John Hospital and Medical Center. Thank you for the great advice. It was very nice to have you on the show again. Thank you for the opportunity. Our listeners to WJR's Healthy Woman Show will be back right after these messages. are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. I'm Ann Thomas. I am here with my co-host, Dr. Carol Kowalczyk. And Dr. Carol, we now turn to Norm Hess. He's the executive director of the Michigan Association 
for Local Public Health. And he is joining us today to talk a little bit about this controversial issue of children masking up when they go to school. Norm, welcome to the show. And Dr. Carroll, I'm going to have you take it from here because we just talked to an infectious disease expert who says, put the masks on the children when they go to school. So thank you, Mr. Hess, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. So, you know, I just had Dr. Johnson on who, who is a proponent of, you know, masking the kids because he states that, you know, they are the most vulnerable right now because they're not um, either allowed to get the vaccine because they're too young or only half of them have been vaccinated. And, and he quoted, uh, you know, significant ICU admissions in states like Florida, Texas, and, and some kids are dying. And so, you know, but on the other hand, I have, you know, parents that in my community that are like, it's not fair. It's our right. How can they play sports? It's just, you know, how can you keep a mask on a, a second grader and a first grader? So what is what are your thoughts about uh, this issue? Well, Dr. Carroll, my thoughts are that you just summed it up in very succinct terms. That's that is the issue that we're facing. Um, it is indeed very controversial. Um, I think that if you speak, if anyone with a child speaks to their child's pediatrician, their advice um, is most almost certainly going to be that your child is safer with the mask on. And we live in a country where um, freedom is paramount and civil liberties are taken very seriously. And so there are folks who um, feel that this is an infringement upon their rights and, and their ability to parent their children. From a public health perspective, I think that um, it absolutely makes sense for children to wear masks in schools. Last year, we had um, very low transmission rates in classrooms. And I think it's because schools did a tremendous job of mitigating the strategy through masks, social distancing, um, hand washing and ventilation and all those different prevention strategies. Um, but this is a different situation that we're going into this year, very different, and it's very concerning. What are the teachers? Uh, do you have any intake about or, or input about what the teachers are going through and their struggles with getting little kids to mask? I mean, I think an eighth grader would be someone where she could say, look, you know, educating them. But what do you do for the preschoolers, the first kindergarten, first graders? I mean, what are the teachers saying? Yeah, so the, the, it, I think that it starts with the expectation of behavior. Yeah, certainly I, I have three kids. They're, they're old enough now to take responsibility for their own safety and health. But I feel for teachers that are in that situation. Um, but if, if, the, if an expectation is not made, if the school does not require it, if it all seems like um, a suggestion, that's just going to make their jobs that much more difficult. And if they don't have the parental support, um, yeah, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to maintain that expectation in their classrooms. I have one teacher where she was the a first grade teacher and she said, 
she'd have these kids mask and then within an hour they would have it in their chin or she would constantly tell them to you know bring the mask up over nose and mouth and and they would they would take it off and they'd say oh miss smith not her real name i need this and then they'd never put their mask back on and she said she was constantly that instead of teaching she was constantly telling kids to to put their masks on so i have an idea if anyone wants to go with this go for it and call me i'll get five percent but you know i said make bubblegum scented strawberry scented you know how when you go to the dentist and you have the you know oh what flavor you know toothpaste whatever spray it you know spray the mask their favorite you know scent or flavor or, you know make it hot dogs or you know pizza or whatever that'll keep them on right don't you think i think that that's a brilliant ideal idea dr carol and um i'll uh, i'll go with you on that okay yeah so call me we'll figure out who we can uh how, who we can get to make this kind of masks because man if i was smelling strawberries and bubble gum or cotton candy all day i think i'd keep my mask on maybe right right lavender that's supposed to be calming right so that, there you go yeah we'll do some lavender eucalyptus you know depending on what mood maybe when it's nap time we'll switch to lavender masks that might yeah. work so Anne, do you have any questions so we are seeing in some of the southern states, the kids have already gone back to school and they're not required to wear masks. They're already being sent home in some districts and they have to quarantine and it's disrupting school. So what are you telling parents and teachers and students about this? I mean, we're seeing it play out right before our eyes that you've got to wear a mask until you get all these kids vaccinated. Right. Uh, my daughter started school this morning. Uh, many schools are starting this morning and some start next week. I believe that a few started already. And um, there, there will be a place on uh, the public website of MDHHS to report school-related outbreaks. So um, I'm not optimistic that this is going to go smoothly in any way. Um, I think that, like I said, we're in a very different position this year than we were last year. Um, last year, there was a mandate. Schools were very um, diligent about uh, doing whatever they could to follow the, those procedures. This year, we have a very mixed bag across the state with schools. Some schools have mask mandates, others don't. Some do under certain conditions. And, um, and also we have a variant that is acting differently than we did last year. And we're seeing more, more kids, even before school started, we're seeing more kids who are coming down with this. Now, thank God it is generally mild, but not always. And, um, and how many serious illness or death do we tolerate among children before we realize that this is something we have to move on? And so, um, yeah, I, I am I'm very concerned about what's what's going on. I'm I'm very concerned about the pressure that this puts schools under, and um, also the local health departments who are working very diligently with their schools and uh, facing a lot of public backlash. You know, it's interesting, Norm. Last year, the conversation when the kids weren't in school was all about how important it is to get them to school for mental health 
purposes, right? And socialization. And now the conversation really should be put a mask, have them all wear a mask so they don't have to go back to online learning and they can be together and they can do all the different activities because we really do need to think about their mental health and, and their development. Yeah, I've not heard any other idea that is um, going to help us keep these kids in school. Um, a mask is not perfect by any means. Nobody ever said it was, but um, the goal is to keep kids healthy and keep them in school. And um, I, I, if I'm wrong, I'll be the first one to come back on your show and say, I was so wrong, but I just am afraid that I'm not wrong. And neither are health officers and physicians around the state. They're all in agreement that kids need to be wearing masks. Norm Pass, Executive Director of the Michigan Association for Local Public Health. Thanks for the time today. And we will check back with you in a month or two, just to see where we are and, and what your thinking is on this. Thank you very much for having me. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We'll be back right after that. Dr. Carol, in this next segment, we are going to talk a little bit about something that I don't really know anything about. It's called secondary infertility. So first of all, will you explain to me what exactly that is? Well, the idea behind secondary infertility is that you know, the first baby or the first pregnancy was was no issue. You got pregnant, you know, within the time frame. Uh, now you're on to baby number two, and it's not happening. And you wonder, is it just taking time, or is there a fertility issue? So, uh, secondary infertility is just as important as primary infertility. And that involves the inability to get pregnant after a year of trying if you're under 35, six months if you're over 35, yesterday if you're over 40. And so the the advice to our listeners out there is that if it was you know easy to get pregnant the first time, but you're having a struggle the second time to kind of follow those definitions and or if you have underlying medical conditions like irregular periods or uh, you know, a male factor or previous infection in the tubes or something that you should seek treatment sooner than later so that someone like myself can do the proper workup, which is the same as if you never were able to get pregnant and also provide the right treatment options. What would be the issue or some of the issues if you had a perfectly easy, normal pregnancy the first time, but then you were having trouble the second time? What would it be? Well, it could be a number of things. It could be you're you're getting older. So as you're getting older, your eggs are getting older. It could be a change in your hormone levels. You could have a problem with your thyroid. You could have irregular periods due to insulin resistance. You could have decreased ovarian reserve uh, that you didn't have before. Uh, you could have been uh, had a, a surgery or a pelvic infection or a bleed or a, a you know pel pelvic abdominal you know blood ruptured cyst that could have affected your tubes and the male factor. I mean, as men get older, their sperm parameters may change. So those are some things that that were not maybe a problem then, but could be an issue now. And do you see a fair amount of this in your practice? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And the cool thing about this is that, uh, you know, people are talking like you and I are talking on the show tonight. People are talking to each other and they're seeking support. They're seeking help to to really find out hey you know i i'm having a trouble that i didn't have before 
you know, is this normal and what can I do? And, and I think that for that reason, people are more thankfully open about fertility with their doctors and with each other that they're coming to see us. And our next guest, Stephanie Jones, the founder of the Michigan Fertility Alliance, it sounds like you, Stephanie, can relate to what we're talking about because you yourself have dealt with this. Absolutely. I suffer from secondary infertility. Wow. And Dr. Carroll, I'm going to kind of let you take it over from here because we're also going to talk about the Michigan Infertility Advocacy Day taking place on September 22nd. So I know, Stephanie, that Dr. Carroll's got a lot of questions for you today. Well, I really appreciate you being here, Stephanie, and I know that uh, the road with the secondary infertility is is very you know difficult because of what we had just talked about, and you know I I, I just was very proud that you are doing this and and taking your journey in a positive way to help others, and if you know if you could kind of talk a little bit about the emotions of going through secondary infertility and what got you interested in, in starting the Michigan Fertility Alliance and a little about this first advocacy day. I'm so excited. It's September 22nd and, and what that's all about. So a little bit about you know what you've been going through and, and how this led to your journey. Well, I just wanna thank you for having me on the show. I really am honored. I know your work. Dr. Carroll, and I'm, I'm just glad to be here. So my journey to secondary infertility was one of the items that you uh, touched on. I had a corneal ectopic pregnancy rupture. Um, I was unable to carry a pregnancy after that. So my journey to secondary infertility was kind of quick, right? I knew right, right away after that experience that we were unable, I was going to be unable to carry safely. Um, it was very devastating because, you know, one in eight couples suffer from infertility and you always think it's never going to be you, right? When you're young and you're, your kids, your friends are having kids and you're focused on your career and you're gonna wait to have kids and then you start to have kids and your first one goes off you know, without incident and then all of a sudden you're kind of in this situation where you're left kind of picking up the pieces and the emotions is, is it's very, very challenging because in your mind, you think my family unit is X, right? Two kids, one kids, three kids, four kids, whatever it is, and then you end up um, being kind of told that that's not going to be the case. So that led my husband and I to know surrogacy was going to be our only option for expanding our family. Um, in 2019, we started our surrogacy journey and I became very um, educated and knowledgeable about the surrogacy laws in Michigan. And I had wanted to hitch my wagon to an organization that was um, doing the work of changing laws and bringing awareness to surrogacy and infertility issues in the state of Michigan. And I realized there really wasn't one, there wasn't one coalition for say. And um, then that's how, so just kind of out of necessity, Michigan Fertility Alliance started. And we have a group of really passionate patient advocates and supporting advocates, um, doctors, attorneys, um, whatnot that are part of the organization. And we decided September 22nd, we were going to hold the first ever Michigan Infertility Advocacy Day. And the goal for that day is we will meet, be meeting with our lawmakers at a state level to educate them about infertility and surrogacy in the state of Michigan. And our goal is really to bring awareness to the issues and also allow the patient advocates and the supporting advocates to share their stories with their lawmakers. And I think that's fabulous. And for those listening, the struggle that I have and Stephanie have with surrogacy is, 
you know, if someone can't carry their pregnancy, I cannot, as the physician, find a surrogate for someone like Stephanie. She has to either find a friend or a family member or whatever, or go out of state. It's like illegal to, to have me, you know, connect a surrogate with her. So, so the, the problem is, you know, if you don't have someone who is willing to carry the pregnancy in, in your family or your friends, you have to go out of state to do this. And in all the states like Chicago, I mean, Illinois and out of surrounding states um, have the mandate that we can help patients like Stephanie. So the importance of this is to make lawmakers aware about what the devastating negative consequences are when we doctors are limited to be able to help this type of problem for our patients. That, that's very true. And Michigan is the only state in the entire country that criminalizes contractual gestational surrogacy. So we need to change that. The law was written in 1988 and we need to revisit that after 30 years. Well, I, I did not realize this. we were the only state. That is, that's sad. That we are actually, and we're one of only two states that do not recognize gestational carrier contracts. They're admissible in, um, in court, so. Wow. Anne, did you have a question? I just think it's really impressive that you've taken this on, Stephanie, and that you're going to do this because like Carol, there's a lot of this I, I really didn't know anything about. And I think it's a wonderful thing that you're creating awareness. Well, thank you. And I and Carol made a really great point, and that was access, right? Um, unless you have access to or are fortunate enough to have access to a carrier, a friend or a family member, and many don't. My husband and I certainly did not, and we were forced to go out of state. So ultimately, we want to rally um, any supporters or advocates to join us on September 22nd, and they can get information on our website or um, you know on our social media to find out how to join. Stephanie Jones, founder of the Michigan Fertility Alliance. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Be sure to keep us posted on this journey. I certainly will. You are listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show. We will continue in just a few minutes. Dr. Carroll, as we close out the September edition of this show, we're just a few days away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Can you believe that? You know what? I, I, I can't. It, it, where were you? It seems like yesterday that this devastating thing happened. And, and I know that I was driving to work that morning and my husband called me and said, turn on your radio. I can't believe what's going on. And he was at the barbershop with our son, who at the time was... Uh, five getting a haircut and they watched the the plane hit the tower and I just oh my god I get emotional now that I'm trying to drive to work and I get to work and it's it, what and, and everyone was watching the, the show what the the tv about this devastation do you remember where you were that day I do I was working and so we were watching the monitors and we actually were watching the planes go into the buildings and I at first thought I was watching a promo for a movie coming up. I, mean, I, I just could not believe my eyes. And, you know, we right away had to switch to the network. And it was, it was just a devastating, shocking day. And, um, you know, then I was worried about my children because they were in school. And it was my daughter's birthday. And my husband was taking cupcakes to the classroom, like 
you would do when, when you're in elementary school. And, um, you know, what they were experiencing was worrisome too, because they were, they were in school. And here I'm at work and there was no way I was going to be able to leave the broadcast because, of course, we carried that broadcast throughout the day. And um, it's just it's just it was a terrible, terrible day in America's history. Well, I just wanted to have a few moments to honor those who 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 died and sacrificed their lives that day. And just, you know, if anyone later can just take a moment of silence to just remember the victims and remember the families of the victims that had to and still have to go through this, but also thank and, and a prayer of thank you for the firefighters, the police officers, the healthcare workers, and the common citizen. That was the one thing that everyone ran to help everyone else. And and just to, to, to thank again the people who cared. And, and so to honor those that were lost, but to thank those who were there, I think is really, really important. And, and Anne, did you know that September, I think maybe because of this, I don't know, it's National Preparedness Month. Preparedness Month. So the, um, you know, it's interesting, the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency online has actually a whole plan if a disaster like this happens again, and, and they highlight 12 ways to prepare. Uh, and I, I think I gave you a copy. So, you know, within, in, in the honor of the 20th anniversary, wanted to, you know, you know, show honor to that day. Uh, and, and the people who 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 uh, you know went through, but also, I mean, makes you remember that you got to prepare in case something like this happens again. Well, you're absolutely right, Carol. And you know, all of the things occurring in Afghanistan right now remind us that we do still have a terror threat here in the United States. And so, it would be very very smart to be prepared. And I love some of these ideas. You know, the sign up for the alerts and the warnings, uh, to make a plan, save for a rainy day. This one is really important. Practice emergency drills. Mm -hmm. You know, what would you do? You know how we talked about our kids being in school and, you know, how do you handle that? Yeah. And, and, they, and they, with regard to that, you know, the emergency drills, you know, they, they say collect, create a paper copy of contact information for your family or other important people, such as medical facilities, doctors, schools, or service providers. Make sure everyone has a copy in his or her backpack, purse, wallet. You know, make sure that there is a safe place that, that everyone can go to. Uh, test the family communication plan. Say to each other, hey, if something happened, you know, how do we connect? How do we practice this? Um, get safeguard your documents. Make sure you have, you know, where your passport and everything is that you need. Plan with neighbors. Have a community. Uh, make your home safer. Know the evacuation routes if there's a disaster. Assemble or update supplies if there's a safe place you're going to. Make sure you have enough supplies. Um, get involved in your community. Document and ensure your property. So these are like 12 ways to prepare that's on this website for FEMA. And, uh, you know, it, it sounds silly because we're, we're blessed to be in America and we have a you know great community and, and, and great people to keep us safe, but, you know, you never know. You're absolutely right. It's just smart to be prepared. And, and on that day, on September 11th, I think we should all pause and say a prayer for all of those people that were so terribly affected by this tragedy. I agree. 
Carol, it was great to see you. I will see you next month for the month of October. We'll get ready for Halloween. I think we should do a little piece on Halloween and hopefully we'll be get out there and trick or treat this year. And God bless America. God bless America. You've been listening to WJR's Healthy Woman Show brought to you by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health. On behalf of Dr. Carol Kowalczyk, I'm Ann Thomas. We hope you have a great night. The Healthy Woman Show with Ann Thomas and Dr. Carol Kowalczyk has been presented by the Michigan Center for Fertility and Women's Health.